Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we welcome Lauren Cooper. Lauren, may you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lauren Cooper. I am a doctoral student and in the forestry department, and I also lead the forest carbon and climate program. So when I hear forestry, I immediately think of trees. Uh, what exactly does your, how does your research involve with trees in the first place? So um, there's a lot of disciplines in the forestry department. Um, we range from very physical science to more on the social science side of things. Uh, I'm more on the social science side, so I'm really interested in policies, stakeholder engagement, um, education. A big part of my work is a lot in translating some of the physical science into uh, shaping decision making. What kind of physical science do you shape for these uh, policy uh, implementations? So uh, we know that uh, forests, um, we're probably all aware that forests have an increasingly important um, part of the conversation about climate change. Um, and uh, so my work is really uh, bridging the gap between what we know physically about climate change and how the forests interact with the atmosphere and store carbon, um, which is part of CO2, which warms our climate, um, and translating that into people that make decisions about forests. So whether it's forest management, how to, how to manage forests that we use for timber or conserving forests. Um, and then particularly for my research, I work with um, communities in um, Peru and Ecuador that uh, make decisions communally about forests um, in their territories. Well, that just uh, happens to coincide near the region where the Amazon rainforest is rainforest fire is currently happening right now. We've been talking for decades now about how important the Amazon is um, and uh, issues with Brazil and deforestation have been going for a long time. Um, these forest fires are not actually quite as much of an anomaly as maybe they're being made out to seem in the media right now, like the pressures and the issues that are going on there have been going on for a long time. But I think it's really good and positive that they're getting a lot of attention and, and as much attention as, as they're getting. Um, the problem fundamentally is that uh, there's a, a lot of development pressures um, and, and globalization, access to global markets. So it's basically soy and cattle that's driving deforestation there. Um, but the problem is that once the the rainforest becomes destabilized and degraded, uh, the, the the ecosystem actually kind of changes and becomes more vulnerable. So now it's the dry season, and so some of the clearing and the fires that uh, would have have been done in the past as well are are becoming more dangerous and can get out of control. Uh, similar to what we've seen in in the United States as well, uh, where you have changing conditions and drying conditions, um, and so this is where a lot of my work comes in is kind of differentiating uh, sometimes what are natural cycles and then how these issues can become even more complicated and dangerous with a changing climate. Then do you think what's going on with the Amazon rainforest is a natural thing that's occurring? No, it's definitely it's definitely from uh, people that are clearing the landscape, first of all. So there's um, expanding agriculture uh, in these areas, and then they're using fire to clear the landscape. And sometimes fire, well, fire is used both on an annual clearing of litter um, to kind of speed up the decomposition process and um, clear area, but it's also used to clear new areas of forest. Um, and there's just been, um, they've had a change in leadership in, in Brazil that a lot of um, people are pointing to as a shift in policies and, and kind of re-upping encouragement of um, agricultural practices. 
uh, which uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of research um, is happening right now trying to understand how tightly the changes in policies are a direct um, cause of the current forest fires because it, it hasn't been a huge amount of time since this policy since this new leadership has taken place so it's not clear how directly it's causing this or if this is um, more coincidental from uh, activities that have been taking place over recent decades. Great. And then how does your PhD play a role in a much more general setting when it comes to informing the policies that uh, legislators need to be aware of in regards to forestry research? So that's a, a good question, and that's something that um, really motivates me in my work. Um, so it's important to understand that the land ownership system in um, these countries is very different than in the United States and in, in many areas. Brazil also has a lot of private ownership. Um, and, and I'm not as knowledgeable about Brazil, which is a huge and complex country. Um, but the land management and the forest deforestation pressures are very similar actually between Peru and Ecuador and Brazil. It's a lot of increasing agricultural pressures and it comes up against communally held land um, in all of these countries. And in places like Brazil, uh, or for, cer for sure, for certain, um, Peru and Ecuador, understanding communally held land is, is really important because it, actually in Peru, 70% of the rainforest is, is held by communal um, by communal landholders. So understanding their decision-making, what's important to them, um, is, is fundamentally important to, to conserving the Amazon forest. And, and I know that that issues, we've, we're seeing it in the news right now with Brazil, there's a lot of pushback from indigenous communities that are deeply concerned, and, and rightly so, about um, oncoming pressure and sometimes violent interactions with those that want to deforest and to, um, and to be able to undertake other activities, whether it's mining, um, or um, or agriculture. So um, so my work is really I'm really interested in the communities, but I'm less on like a truly anthropological side of things, uh, where I I'm not my work is not as deeply embedded in in really understanding everything about communities. Uh, I'm more focusing on incentives, so uh, policy incentives, and uh, so whether that's what we call a payment for ecosystem service program or other other sort of payment, and how that's perceived by communities. Um, and what is the appropriate level and type of incentive? Sometimes it's not uh, cash payment. It can be other types of incentives like um, capacity building or training um, or other services that they, they would like. Um, uh, but making sure it's, it's the appropriate type of, of incentive and it's the appropriate amount of incentive um, to make sure that those communities are also participating um, in reducing deforestation because a lot of people out there don't have uh, many livelihood options. And so uh, when they have the opportunity to participate in, in agriculture, for example, it may seem like the only option for them to get access to a, the cash economy. Um, so my work is really looking at how can we communicate and um, support what we call both human development and conservation um, efforts in these areas through incentives, and um, and how can we then communicate that to policymakers? So understanding what what are values in the communities, and then what do the policymakers need to know about that? When communicating this, do you go to Peru to actually talk to them, or do you go to D.C., or do you do everything remotely over here at Michigan State? 
Uh, that's a good question. I do a lot of my work regularly. Um, I am I am in D.C. regularly, but I do go to Peru. Um, so I am focused on Peru. There's um, there's a particular program there that I'm researching. It's called the it's a TDC for short, but it's the direct transfer program um, that's that's in place right now in Peru. And it's paying communities to not deforest. Um, but it's sort of like a policy experiment you could think of um, because you think of it this way because they're um, they're not really they're implementing it, um, but now is the time to start assessing how is it working. What do people think about it? If they could sign up for it again or or for um, like indefinitely for for whatever many years, um, would they sign up again? So it's a good it's a good opportunity to start exploring um, or start better understanding how this particular program is actually shaping decision-making there. Uh, and there are similar programs uh, in, in other countries. There's one in Ecuador, for example. So uh, these countries are kind of looking at one another and trying to figure out if we want to make a long-term plan to both reduce poverty in these areas and um, conserve the rainforest, how do, we, how do we actually do that? In your research, how do you overcome the cultural barrier that exists between you and the uh, I'm not sure. Are you dealing with indigenous South American people or are you dealing with Spanish speaking people? Um, I deal with both. Um, my work. So part of my research is also um, exploring the policies themselves. Um, so I'm I'm also interested in the kind of process that the policymakers are going through to make these policies. A lot of times it's influenced by large uh, international grants. And so I'm kind of tracking also the the influence, um, uh, what's shaping their decision making. So for example, there's a lot of really interesting work in climate and forests, and they throw around terms like gender and equity um, in the international space, and they all speak all these with all this jargon. But how is that really being interpreted um, at the country level? And then and then how are those policies that they're making actually playing out on the ground? Are those ideas about gen about gender and equity and inclusion um, actually happening? So I'm interested in this kind of um, policymaking space as well. So I do spend a lot of time in Lima. So I'll, I spend time like in the Ministry of the Environment, um, but I'm also partnering with various uh, nonprofit, what we call NGOs, non-governmental organizations um, in the international space. So uh, to overcome the cultural barrier, I, I usually like to rely on um, uh, programs that already have relationships in the communities. It's pretty hard to just... Um, show up and march into a community and get somewhere uh, somewhat quickly. So, um, and, and I think one thing that's really important is to not go through the government for that because sometimes um, communities don't have uh, just something about being from the government <laughs> can, can not, um, not necessarily open doors or have a very um, frank and, and open conversation. But these nonprofits that have been working with communities to maybe um, – so, for example, I'm working with one that has been working with communities to improve their agricultural practices, to make them more efficient, help them access markets. Um, their goal is to reduce forest pressure, so or deforestation, um, by reducing the pressure to take more land. So if they can make more money from the same hectares of, of cacao or for chocolate, for example, um, then that, in theory, would... would um, help them not have to keep cutting down more rainforest. So working through those through those nonprofits that are in these communities, um, I'm better able to go and, um, and visit and, and get introduced through people that they already trust. It seems like you work with a lot of 
non-government organizations, NGOs. It seems like you work with a lot of nonprofits, but also government entities as well. How do you organize or prioritize which ones to work with? Because you have a lot of options. Yeah, so that's that's a good question. Um, and I struggle with that, I think, a little bit trying to determine the, the, the right scale to, to look at because there's, I mean, there's certainly entire PhDs you could do looking strictly at the role of the nonprofit sector or how the government works. Um, I've chosen to take kind of a... Um, in some ways, sort of a macro approach. So in my research, I'm looking at both kind of the high level of like influence and decision making um, that's informing these projects. And then we're also developing um, a, a survey instrument that we will issue within the communities to capture um, perceptions there as well. So I mean, I recognize the challenge in really fully diving into these um, different actor types, but I'm looking at a kind of a larger narrative of, of decision making and flows of funding um, and how that's um, ultimately attempting to incentivize and, and change behavior. So I fundamentally have to look across these these um, multiple actors um, and there are trade-offs, I, I guess, as far as granularity of your findings and um, how about, but my goal is is more so to capture um, a, a bigger picture of what's happening on the landscape. Well, this is a really complex and comprehensive PhD project that you're working on here. And I, uh, thanks for the explanation and a little bit of insight. But what motivated you to get involved with this project in the first place? So I've actually been at Michigan State for um, five years now. I started as an academic specialist, and that's still what I kind of jokingly call my day job. Um, I was working in Peru uh, when I accepted this position. I'm from Michigan originally. I'm from um, Detroit. Um, so it was homecoming for me, um, and the timing was right for, for me to do that. Um, and when I, I came back, I was really excited to take on this role as a specialist, and I have developed and led uh, the Forest Carbon and Climate Program in the Forestry Department. And this started from a graduate certificate uh, that we had that had initiated before my time here, um, but we grew it beyond that, and now we're also um, we have a series of professional development opportunities. In um, on, it's mostly online trading. So we just launched a, a six to eight week professional development short course, um, and it's all on forest and uh, forest carbon and climate topics. Um, but then after being here for a number of years, I I realized that I I really liked the um, the research and the teaching opportunities as well. And I, I got really motivated to um, to think about going back to school and, and pursuing a PhD. And it's uh, it's been a really good fit in the department. There's a lot of overlap between my, my interests in the forest carbon and climate program and this international space. Um, and it's just really nice timing because we, we're really established now domestically. And um, it seems like the timing is right to, to start um, expanding our influence internationally. And so I'm, I'm tying that really closely with my doctoral work. Is there a difference between the Department of Forestry at MSU and the Department of Forest Carbon and Climate? I, I can't remember the exact name. Can you repeat that, please? Yeah. yeah, I direct the Forest Carbon and Climate Program. So we are a program in the Department of Forestry. We currently have a number of activities. We do both formal education and non-formal education. So our formal education is a graduate certificate. It's um, graduate level courses online. There's three of them. 
Um, and so we get people from all over the world that get involved in the graduate certificate. For non-formal education, we have some uh, professional development short courses. So we have one offered on a partner's um, e-learning platform, which is the Society of American Foresters. Uh, we offer, uh, we have a new short course on our own platform, so it's on D2L, and we have um, various people, it's largely people from the United States, but from uh, a lot of state governments that are starting to look at how can their forests and their forest inventories contribute to whether uh, possibly state or local level um, climate policies. So, for example, Michigan just joined the Climate Alliance, which is now 24 states that have agreed to uphold the Paris Agreement. And all of these states have governors, uh, offices, and people from their Department of Natural Resources that are looking at carbon and inventories. And um, there's, they just frankly didn't learn about uh, carbon management in, in school, most of them. So we offer, we create um, really beautiful training, um, really interactive online learning experiences, and we um, host people through that. And then we also do a number of stakeholder engagement and outreach activities. So um, I'm headed to a workshop with the U.S. Forest Service on Wednesday in Atlanta, um, and we also host a monthly webinar series. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of stuff on our website if you want to see what we're, what we're up to. We'll make sure to post it on our description of the episode whenever the podcast gets uploaded online. Someone asked Daniel and I a few days ago that I feel like you might be better qualified to answer is how can people, just like the general people, anyone out there, decrease their carbon footprint and be live a more green lifestyle? Yeah, because we find a lot of times people rag on each other for sharing a post about the Amazon rainforest fire, but then they're like, oh, you're not really doing anything that would help. So how can people make a difference in their everyday lives? Oh, this is a big question. Um, I think it is frustrating uh, as individuals because we we know there's these big issues and it's hard to think that what we can do as individuals makes much of a difference. Um, the unfortunate reality is it probably doesn't make that much of a difference um, as your individual decision making. So recycling, um, all of these things are, are great, but there's so many people that um, your individual impact is not necessarily going to you know, stop climate change. There's, there's individual activities you can do, um, but I think that there's also larger policy mechanisms that we need to be striving for. Uh, we know about, for example, issues with plastics. You know, and one individual declining a straw is um, not going to necessarily make a big difference. But I think as a society, we need to start thinking how thinking differently about how we use these types of materials. Um, and unfortunately, you end up getting into a kind of a political discussion pretty quickly about um, about you know really needing to have policies that make these decisions for us. Um, with the right leadership, you can have some really big policy nudges that um, that end up making a really big difference quickly. For example, we have a, a deposit in the state of Michigan, and we have some of the highest rates of um, aluminum of, of can and bottle recycling in the country because we have a deposit. So sometimes policy mechanisms are where you can really get big, big changes. Um, but I don't think people should be disheartened because there's um, there there are things that you can do as an individual. I just sometimes think that I kind of agree sometimes that um, thinking that just because you recycle, but then you're not paying attention to who's in office and who's actually making laws about you um, and and your and materials and 
these types of things is is also a kind of a missed opportunity. So if you really want to if you really want to engage on these topics, you have to pay attention to um, you know what companies are doing and what your government's doing, um, even what your state your your local uh, your local government's doing. Um, you know, speaking up right now in Lansing, they're making decisions about power plants and roads, um, advocating for bike lanes. So there's I think a lot of it's not just riding your bike. It's also advocating for bike lanes and speaking up and, and being a little bit more present and um, communicating what you want to see uh, both in your immediate environment and at, at the next level. So as much as I think, I think that's a good example, as much as I think, yeah, I'm good, good for me, I'm riding my bike. I also made sure to email the, um, the mayor's office and make sure that they put wider bike lanes on the new um, Mount Hope road because I want people to feel safe biking on there. So um, I think there's a, a mix of being individually responsible and then also contributing to um, a larger a larger voice and making sure that you actually um, vote for people that you think are going to work towards perfecting uh, protecting your environment um, and putting policies in place that are actually moving us forward. Before we entered the studio, you mentioned that you have two children. What is it like being a mother and an academic specialist and a Ph.D. student? Yeah, it's kind of intense right now. Um, I I'm lucky to have a partner that um, uh, that we we share a lot of duties and we um, we trade off the the flow of things that need to be done in our household. Um, but I'm I will say I'm super grateful to have uh, the type of work that I have. So I I can squeeze in flexible hours. I can um, switch up my day as needed. Um, and so. Yeah, I, th- I mean, frankly, it is challenging. Um, this is, uh, I'll tell myself, this is just an intense part of my life. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Um, and, um, but I, you know, I think I just rely on the the fact that I really enjoy both my work and what I'm researching. So uh, I'm I'm really inspired by the, the things that I, I look at, by the people I talk to. I love the opportunity to travel. Um, so even though it's hard to be away from my family sometimes for up to like a week and a half is about as long as I can go. Um, but I, I love I love doing it. I love advancing my, my language skills. And I'm getting really excited about the contribution I can make in, in this field. Uh, and I'm seeing that my research questions are, are unique. And so I'm, I'm really motivated to, to keep going. Um, and a little self-care and making sure I get enough sleep goes a long way. What advice would you give to other graduate students that are currently parents as well that feel like they're struggling and don't know what to do? Well, I mean, I think my number one thing really is um, communicating with with my partner about what needs to get done um, and having the trade-offs and sharing those responsibilities really evenly so that if there's an imbalance there, then it could really add a lot of um, stress on one person unfairly, so that would maybe be something to check first. Um, and then if you if you don't you don't have family or you don't have a, a network, another thing would be to to build that out. You know, there's a lot of other families and people that would be happy to do some sort of sharing or trade offs uh, with with kids for free if you can if you can work it out so you can make sure you get some free time. Um, and and also if if you just don't have any of that bandwidth, it's it's also okay to back off from some of the some of the pressure and some of the activities. I mean everything is everything is is a trade off, and we can only do what we can do, and it's not really not worth uh, 
taking away your enjoyment of your children and your everyday by just trying to um, meet too many demands. So, you know, sometimes it's okay to slow it down a year or, or take the pressure off in another way or um, switch up your schedule so you have a little more time at home during the day if you need to. Uh, and so maybe that could be a question to talk to your supervisor about or, you know, work from home some other days. So there's a there's a lot of little things that, that I do that help me cope and get a lot done that um, by by building in a little more flexibility when I need it. Thanks a lot for those words of wisdom and also taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to come join us this morning in the studio. Well, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.